Mercedes grew up in a household where inventions, product ideas, and web development were discussed at the dinner table. That unique environment created a curious-minded person who started her professional career at Wall Street, but later became a startup founder and investor. Today, she's part of Lightspeed Venture Partners. We discussed her interest in fintech, crypto, NFTs, LATAM investing, and much more. My name is Brian Reckworth. Vamos LATAM. Well, welcome to the podcast. We first connected because I attended a clubhouse and you're on it. And I think uh, I've had an equal from AllVP that hosted it. And so that was my first kind of interaction with you. And I learned more about you as an investor. So that was, I guess, two years ago. That was the depths of COVID. I remember sitting on the couch kind of thinking, wow, I haven't left my house in you know too long. Uh, that was fun. That was, yeah, a while ago. Yeah, it was a while ago, but it was good to, good to chat. So here we are back in, in an audio format. Great to connect with you. I've seen Lightspeed quite active in the region and want to dive in with you a little bit more, maybe get to know you a little bit better also, and then talk a little bit more about kind of your thoughts on the region, what you're getting excited about. So maybe we can start a little bit. It sounds like you were surrounded by inventors in your childhood and you were introduced to kind of web development by your family. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience and how it impacts you today? Yeah, you guys, you guys did your research. Yeah, I um, thought everybody, all their families did, you know, was talk about ideas at the dinner table every night because that's what my family did. My dad's an engineer, my mom's an, in- an accountant, and we always were just were talking about business ideas. Um, my dad was like always embarrassing me as a teenager because he would pull out anytime I had friends come over, you know, his radio frequency identification chips and lay them down on the table and like talk everybody through every part. And I'd have to be like, dad, nobody wants to hear about these chips. You know, like it, this isn't cool for a teenage girl, um, which it should be. But, um, you know, we, we have that type of thing was happening. And, you know, we would talk about what if there was a pet, you know, robot that was computer powered pet robot that was in the house you know, people want, every kid wants a pet, but nobody wants to take care of it. The parents don't want to take care of it for the kids. And we would be discussing, okay, how would they go to market? Where would they sell it? Would they sell it in Walmart? Would they sell it in Target? Or, you know, would be they, would they sell it online? What should the price point be if people should buy it? And, you know, how long are people going to keep this thing for before it breaks? Like, is it really going to fulfill the absence of a pet? We would have these long, you know, discussions at our dinner table. This was all before Furbies came out. So then I remember when Furbies came out, my dad was like, we had that idea. We talked about that extensively. And uh, execution is everything. We clearly didn't execute, but we would just go on, you know, pick a topic like that and then spend most of the dinner discussing how it might unfold. Well, the the pet conversation, I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. So that conversation is in peak moment right now for me. So Maybe I'll, I'll look at for some alternatives to buy myself a little more time, but I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll break down here any minute and get a puppy because I kind of want one too, but uh, I know I'll end up taking care of it. So that's cool. So you kind of simulated these experiences as, and what a great exposure kind of as a kid to have that thought process, right? And, and kind of imagine these things because it, it gives you kind of the, the, the freedom and leeway to just kind of imagine a world and problem solve and, and think about things. So. Uh, that sounds like a great gift that your your family or your dad gave to you. And let's fast forward a little bit. You know, you you traded 
Wall Street for the startup world. That was a, a big move for you because a lot of people get in the Wall Street world and then it's quite a big transition. What was that change like for you? Uh, tough. Nobody wanted to hire me. I remember being, you know, seven months into the job at Goldman. I'm doing a lot of equities and commodities trading. I'm learning about financial markets, capital markets, how things work. This is in the post, you know, GFC global financial crisis. And so a lot of our clients had a lot of fear about investing and I had a lot of fear of investing. And I thought what I was doing was intellectually stimulating, like, okay, it's really interesting to learn how options and derivatives work and to understand, you know, global capital flows, um, how to increase in, you know, assets and diversify assets through asset allocation. But I didn't feel like my heart was in it. I just realized seven months in, I remember asking my parents, okay, what do you think if I just go ahead and like switch jobs now? And they were like, "Mm, seven months is too small, is too short. Like you should probably sit put for a couple of years, like do the program, you know, they have analyst programs at Goldman that are about two years. So I did that, but I was job searching and I was on the hunt for startup activity kind of very quickly. And I started working with um, a company called Heritage Link Brands, which is a wine importer. It was a new company at the time, started by an HBS grad, Selena Cuffey. And I went to them and said, hey, can I volunteer for you? Can I be your marketing person? I'm working my full-time day job at Goldman, but I would really like to try and help you guys get the word out and to you know bring your your product to market. And so I did that. Went to a lot of you know wine trade shows, did, ran their social media. I remember like setting up my HubSpot, setting all of the email you know social media tweets to go out for the day, and then like in the bathroom at Goldman, and then running back to my desk to pick up the phones and trade. Um, and anyway, so I was doing all of this stuff. I was interviewing at places. I really, I decided I wanted to be a product manager. And let me tell you, nobody wanted to hire in 2011, 2012, a product manager who had only done asset management. And I also worked at the Fed briefly, you know, trading and economics. They're like, what do you know about product? And I was like, I swear I'm really a startup person. And, um, I, I I tried to get myself a lot of interviews. I remember going to Square's office in uh, San Francisco in 2012, asking her friend to kind of like let me in the building for coffee. And then I would just try and meet with a lot of people. I was trying to like give myself an interview. I met with about five people, but it didn't work out. I didn't get an offer, of course, on an unsolicited job interview. Um, but eventually I found this place, General Assembly, where they were hiring. General Assembly is an ed tech startup in New York. And they were kind of a co-working space at the time. And so finally convinced them to let me do operations. And so joined them as a kind of general ops role that was launching, you know, their education business. I was a third hire on their education team for that product at the time. So it sounds like very scrappy story. And I relate to the, the mentality of just kind of making things happen and going after it. How do you evaluate when you meet founders? How do you discover if they have that scrappy nature? Because it's a quality that is admirable in founders and is usually correlates with some degree of success because, hey, it's a hustle and it's a grind. So how do you kind of ascertain whether this person has, do you look for anecdotes similar to the one you just gave? Talk a little bit more about how you kind of uncover that when you're evaluating. And maybe you can think about a few companies that you've invested in where the founders had those qualities and characteristics that impressed you that aside from the business and the economics of what they were building, it kind of pushed you in the right direction and be like, oh, I want to partner with this person. Totally. Yeah. That scrappiness, that hustle fast factor, the execution intensity, 
these founders who the urgency of what they want to do is very palpable. It's very right now. And if they can't find a front door, they're going to find a side door. They're going to find a you know basement. They're going to find a way in somehow. I look for that um, with founders. I, I actually think it's one of the execution intensity is one of the hardest things to evaluate as an investor who has not had that much time with the founder because often, especially in 2021 times, we are making decisions really quickly within a day or two of meeting people. And I do think it takes a little bit of time to understand their ability to stick with it. The thing I am able to assess a little bit better in just one or two meetings is whether they're what I call learning animals, which I think also tends to go with, it doesn't always, but it tends to go with execution intensity. You can see how urgent are they about learning. And nobody at a seed stage or series A stage startup has all the resources in the world that they want. So I really ask myself, what are they doing to go above and beyond to get really outsized resources and learning opportunities for themselves and their founders and their team? And so if they are looking to learn about For example, I invested in a company, Beak. Um, It's a consumer audio app in Mexico run by Pamela and Guillermo. And when I met Pamela, just listening to the things she would say about how she pulled resources into her orbit. She was a, you know, college dropout, Teal Fellow, YC alum, but, you know, young and new to this whole, this whole industry. And she would say, you know, I realized I have a really big problem with subscription payments failing because of just payment, you know, an inability to actually charge. And so I need to figure out how to improve the subscription billing cycle via payments engineering. And next thing I know, she's got, you know, Netflix's head of payment engineering on call, like working with her team in the trenches, you know, advising them on a kind of like weekly, like daily basis about how to improve this really difficult problem. And she's kind of soaked it all up and is like, can tell me everything about payments engineering as if she's an expert. And so that is really what I look for, like that ability to just go deep and pull in, you know, these people. Now she's working with Sam Altman and Dylan um, from Figma on how to really think about product and product design in a, the most kind of world-class way. And it's like, Great. Another example that you're, you're just pulling everything toward you. Yeah. She's in good company there with, with those two entrepreneurs. And, and you no, know, Pamela's great. I don't know if you know, she was on the podcast also. And I met her. Yeah. Several years ago. Super impressed by her. I recently co-hosted a lunch and, and invited her uh, with a handful of other kind of top founders in Mexico. She and told me about and that. So she yeah, loved it. She, she's great. And, and actually, I don't know if you know this, but my book is on Beak. I wrote a book and it's available on Beak and she, they actually translated it. So I actually am a, am a customer of Beak, not from the standpoint of a subscription, but from a, a partner and a, and a content provider for, for Beak. So I got a chance to see the inner workings of, of how they operate. And, and it's a very professional team and a pleasure to work with them at, at Beak. So fantastic entrepreneur and, and definitely a incredibly good example of someone that's scrappy and that, you know, hustles. So I think that the qualities you describe of identifying a need someone that can kind of supplement your a gap that you have and then filling that with in a very resourceful way is is definitely a quality of a, of a great entrepreneur. Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. 
In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. I want to go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about you made the leap from Wall Street, closing the Wall Street kind of portion here. Anything you learned from Wall Street that you think is applicable to startups, made you a better investor or help you think more like a founder? What can you say that added value to your kind of career as an investor? One thing about Goldman in particular is that is very high performing culture. And they would talk about it all the time. If we have this special culture, we have this unique culture. But I couldn't really tell how different it was, except for maybe, okay, well, it's not a more, you know, the, the Federal Reserve was more economics and kind of research oriented. And it was when I left that I realized, oh, wow, they do have a really unique culture in terms of just performance expectations. You know, if you didn't reply to an email in just a couple of hours, you had like people calling you from the next division, like, hey, did you see my email? I know you're sitting at your desk all day. Um, so that taught me just kind of excellence in terms of response time, not missing any commas, periods, spaces, anything. You know, the, my, my old boss um, printed out a presentation I made once and it was just like red marks everywhere. And she was like, where's your attention to detail? <laughs> and I didn't make many mistakes after that. Um, so there was things like that you learned that were more from the culture. And then in terms of from the industry, just learning about the capital markets world and how it works. I invest in fintech quite a bit today. I sit on the board of a, a credit card neobank. I'm an investor in a NFT, uh, two NFT marketplaces. I work with some wealth management uh, companies, kind of like a neo broker and also kind of like a hedge fund as a service company. Um, I also have invested in a vertical SaaS fintech company that monetizes through payments. And so I have a lot of fintech investments now. And I think back all the time to, I actually had a front row view via a lot of the asset allocation work I was doing to a broad range of asset classes and just understanding, you know, when crypto came along, my thought was, oh, that's just a new asset class. It has its own distinct, you know, features and ways and characteristics, (laughs) can't say that word right now, of how it behaves, but it's just another asset class. And it's a, you know, from a digital perspective, non-government But you can think of it in a similar way in terms of how does a consumer approach it? How does a consumer place value in it? What's the volatility? What's the expected returns? And so that lens is really helpful. Anytime I analyze a new fintech product, I think a lot of people, when they first think of fintech, if you're a consumer who's never thought about the back end, you are thinking of like, well, I don't know, it's just a bank. It's just where I get my card. And I don't really understand how it works. And Goldman really taught me to think behind the scenes of what's the structure of a product and what is its value it's supposed to return. That's a good transition to talk a little bit more about fintech in, in general. And it sounds like that's been an area of focus for you, crypto, fintech more broadly in Latin America and the US. Let's talk about the state of, of crypto and fintech in general. Maybe let's fintechs more broader. Let's talk about crypto for a second. Where are we in the cycle but it's always a rocky kind of up and down with, with crypto and any things that you're excited about right now. Do you feel like given that there was a lot of hype and then now it's kind of through that more processing cycle where it's, it's less hype? Do you think that it's a better time to be investing in crypto? 
What is your just general kind of take on where we are in the cycle and what you're excited about? We're at the bottom where we just passed, I think, the bottom of the bear market. So I think we're actually on the way up now. You're seeing the cryptocurrency prices start to recover, but even more so, you're starting to see the investment activity and interest start to recover a little bit. The bottom of the bear market is an amazing time for builders to be building. But I think if you think about kind of this three-year you know, having cycles, which let's see if it maintains for, you know, the third cycle or longer in a row. But, you know, 2024 is going to be the next having event for Bitcoin when the rewards that miners get for mining the blocks decreases. And so leading into that, there's typically a little bit of a swell of prices. And I think, you know, we're at the beginning of 23, that's going to happen mid 24. So I think by the end of this year, early next year, things are going to look different. I don't know if we're going to reach the 2021 heights again. That was the last time there was the having event. But I do think we're going to see a lot more activity. You know, the we're also going to continue to see more regulation and more enforcement of bad actors kind of needing to comply with the law. And so I think the, you know, different regulatory bodies and will continue to come out with some of their penalties. And that's a good thing overall for consumers and for board governance and like how companies should run. So yeah, I I think right now, like the, there's still also, it's a good, in terms of the sectors that are doing well within crypto, it's all about the infrastructure plays right now. Um, you know, L1s, L2s. Um, uh, one of our L2s just had a massive milestone kind of overcoming some L1s. Uh, Kind of in a volume perspective, we look at middleware as well in terms of like Gnosis Safe and um, companies that are doing all sorts of kind of like elements to make the middle work, multi-signatures or ZK rollups or kind of MEV focus. Consumer is still the area where I think it's going to take a while to really re- recognize its full potential. We have strong applications in gaming, NFT marketplaces, which is kind of like commerce. And um, kind of consumer fintechs like the MetaMask and Phantoms of the world in terms of the wallets, but all of the other things in terms of loyalty and you know decentralized ownership for creators, like these promises that people talked about in Web three. I think it's still really early days. So the next thing I'm waiting for in the cycle is for some of those consumer ideals to come to fruition. And how do you see Latin America playing a role in, in all of this? Obviously, it's, it's kind of been led in other parts of the world, but there's been a, a burgeoning community in Argentina. There's a lot of where there's like really volatile currencies like Argentina or Venezuela. There, there tends to be kind of a, a faster understanding of some of this stuff. And I think you covered a handful of terms that we're not going to break down here for my dad, even though he's listening and he, you know, he still questions uh, kind of crypto and, and Bitcoin. But I, I uh, so we won't we won't kind of delve into all the, the details here, but would love to hear your thoughts on the role of Latin America, what you see happening, what kind of innovation in the region and kind of what you're most excited about in Latin America there. You mentioned, you know, the countries, Argentina, Venezuela, Argentina, especially one of the best markets for crypto in the world. I see tons of startups coming out of Argentina that are consumer crypto companies, consumer crypto fintechs. And if you think about just the core premise of crypto, it's a store of value, a currency that is separate from your government. The separation of state and money is a really big, important use case for it. And Argentina clearly 
has Argentinians clearly have a reason to think that could be important for them with like 100%, you know, inflation and really high interest rates and just volatile currency. The other really interesting use case for crypto is cross-border money movement. And if we think about how, you know, I got married last year, it's like so hard to send money from one country to another. I was getting married in the Dominican Republic and, uh, you know, paying all these crazy wire fees and transfer fees. Well, instant cross-border, you know, cheap uh, gas fees when they're cheap are still a lot better than, you know, some of the other options. And I think in Latin America, that's another big use case that we're seeing because Latin America is becoming a hub for lots of trade activity from around the world. The geopolitical tensions between the chi- between China and the U.S. have actually been a big boon for Mexico in terms of some of the nearshoring capabilities and logistics. And so how do those tie together? I mean, a lot of companies at the me- mega enterprise side or size are still able to use utilize traditional rails. But if you think of crypto as another rails, that's where we're actually seeing a lot of like merchant SMB cross-border money movement. There's been spin management players like Tribal that are utilizing crypto and even different uh, bigger commerce players like Mercado Pago and Mercado Libre are starting to incorporate crypto for loyalty use cases. And so to me, all of that activity in Latin America is just so much more real. I wrote this post last year about utility and the top use cases for crypto that have a real utility. And Latin America displays all of the top use cases, whereas in the US, it's a little bit more of a, you know, uh, it's interesting, but it's a little bit more of kind of a play money side thing. Yeah, I think that when you grow up in volatility, you understand faster the utility. So I think that that makes total sense. And we'll we'll drop a link to that article um, in the show notes here, just for anyone that's listening. Let's more broadly around just fintech. You're an investor in companies like Story and, and, you know, I've had Marlene on here before, Flink, Magic Eden, which you mentioned NFTs. So from your experience, what are the most common challenges that these fintechs face and what advice do you have for founders facing these challenges? I might be asking for a friend because we might be working on some fintech stuff, but would love to hear your two cents on what are the challenges and how can founders face the challenges? For consumer fintechs, which I've done a lot of consumer investing the challenge is how do we find a sufficiently strong wedge to being the entry point into eventually what is a more a broader consumer bank? And that wedge oftentimes has market tailwinds. A couple of years ago when I invested in Flink, the retail trading zeitgeist was taking hold across the world. You know, com- country companies in every country across Trade Republic in Germany and you know, Pintu in Southeast Asia, Webull in China and the U.S., Robinhood, obviously, um, with the AMC, Jamie kind of situation in 21. There, there was this global movement and interest in retail trading. And in the U.S., these retail trading levels peaked during the pandemic and then kind of sustained. And so the thing that you have to do is catch that tailwind, utilize that tailwind to build a large base of users, attract venture capital dollars, build a team, start applying for licenses, and then eventually be able to start cross-selling into other products. Ideally, you start to see primary use case, um, primary usage opportunities within your customer base, meaning they are using you as like their main investment account or their main banking partner. They have direct deposit going in, monthly deposits. And then, you know, eventually if you get that right, you hit 50 million of revenue, you hit 
you know, tens of millions of revenue, you start to receive the licenses, then you can go cross sell credit or insurance or banking, spend cards, whatever you want. So the challenge is like, how do you get that first part to work? And there's a couple of wedges that are not so time, like moment in time driven. You know, there's some ever present needs, like, for example, in the US, um, getting refunds on, you know, cards or being able to fight like a, a you know, a, a charge you don't think is, is accurate. That's an ever present need. People, you know, also like another one for subscription and billing, being able to cancel your, you know, free trial. Like those are things people will always want. So if you build a good fintech experience around that, you can then start to layer on others. So I think that's the, the real issue for consumer fintechs. And then with, um, you know, ones that focus on more like SMBs, SMB fintech, the hardest part is always just the churn of the SMB. They're like a consumer, but they're not. <laughs> I mean, they have their business accounts, so they have a reason to have it, but you just, you, I think people don't expect the churn to be so high or they don't expect the go to market to be so difficult, but it really is a consumer go to market. So you have to recognize that, but still build for an enterprise business. And so that's, that's the complexity there. And then on the enterprise, like infrastructure side, especially in Latin America, the challenge is just the go to market in terms of getting people to pay the, the ACV levels that you want, you know, software as a service, SaaS is still relatively new in terms of startups making it huge off of that in Latin America compared to the US. And so the how to build a go-to-market team, the buyer's receptivity of that, it's all just a, a little difficult. And then the other big payments difficulty, I would say in LATAM is just like so many different countries. How do you get the payment orchestration to work? How do you build for five, four different countries that you're rebuilding your tech stack? Um, at least a layer of it every time. What would you say when you think about kind of B2C and B2B? Clearly, there was a big boom of B2C. We did our report, our LATAM tech report, and we kind of looked at venture dollars that went in. And obviously, you know, you've got some huge success cases in Latin America. Personally, trending more towards B2B at this point, infrastructure, or are you kind of equally interested in terms of your attention being spent on B2C versus B2B? I think I'm like this rare holdout who's just still really interested in consumer. I know everyone hates consumer fintech. Uh, I love it. I think it's hard and that's what's great about it. Um, so my attention has drawn more and more to B2B, but that's really relative to my like 100% starting point. Um, I would say the most interesting things happening in the Americas as a whole for fintech right now are actually a lot of the infrastructure plays happening in Brazil with PIX's rollout, new open finance and open banking laws. And so I'm spending a lot of time there trying to understand what would be the second and third order effects of that coming out. Um, and yeah, I, I'm spending a lot more time there now. Cool. Let's double click on one other thing. You mentioned the SMB to enterprise. How do startups make the transition to be able to kind of accompany their customers? They get larger. What are the big challenges there? And what are some best practices you've seen is it like deeper features? Is it like, what is the strategy? And any thoughts on some success stories of companies that have been able to kind of go downstream and serve larger customers as a portfolio of customers grows? Totally. Yeah. Well, two examples, you know, we're investors in a company called Phoenix in the US and um, they had initially more SMB players, even moving more upmarket, more enterprise. And then also an example in um, Brazil with Stark Bank, 
you know, they started with smaller customers and then kind of quickly moved upscale, uh, upstream for enterprise. The difficulty in these businesses, when you first get started, like the allure and attractiveness of signing up a lot of number of clients, clients with SMBs where easier to convince and easier to get started is there, you know, versus the super long sales cycles of months or, or quarters. But those customers don't have as much payment volume. They may not even be ready to start revenue. And so you're signing up a bunch of people who end up becoming kind of like zombie clients. And they, it's not a top priority for them because they have so many other things that they're trying to get right in their product market fit or even just in their business operations. And so that is typically, I see folks start there, they see the alert, they start to realize that the revenue generation isn't going to come through. And then they start going more for the enterprise clients where then they deal with the super long sales cycle. And then they also have to end up building more features that the enterprise clients want because if a really big client is going to come with the, to you with you know, uh, $900,000 million ACV, they might want something that your startup does not yet offer. And so then you go back to this loop of kind of building product, but yet you don't want to customize. And so you have to keep stuff that's flexible enough for everyone. So I kind of see companies always get in this loop. I think the important thing to do is start earlier with your enterprise sales motion, even though it will feel fruitless in the beginning. Just start with the hard business model and if you want to also offer a self-serve for SMBs or also onboard SMBs, I think that is fine. But really making sure that you have the go-to-market team separated by client level and keeping them really focused on just going after that client. So would you focus on, in all things, obviously we're hypothetically speaking here, but w- would you recommend not focusing on those small customers because there there's churn there? I mean... Can you consider it a wedge where you're able to like build and layer on additional? Because the challenge that I see is you know, you've got to service a customer. You've got to solve a really specific need, right? Like that's what building businesses, you've got to understand what's the big pain. You alleviate that pain with something. And obviously, the larger the customer, the more complex the operation and, and more diversified the needs. So the product set will expand the surface area significantly. And then it's hard to like compete because you're, you're kind of competing with a, a weaker product set. So would you uh, start with something a little bit with less friction and then expand from there? Or would you just try to build the the stack and, and go after the larger customers because the LTV is so much larger? It's a tough question. I've had, com- I've had companies do both. Um, I have an investor in a company called Forage that does kind of HR tech for enterprises and they only ever went after enterprises. I think that was a good move for them. The thing is, if you do start with smaller clients, you can kind of learn as you build the product um, together and you can learn on a quote unquote less critical customer so that when you do sell to the enterprise, maybe it's better. Although, of course, the features of the essence, the smaller customer want may not be what the bigger one did. So I don't have the perfect answer for you. I think most companies have done a combination of both at some point. It kind of reminds me of like seed investing versus series A and B investing. They both can work. You're going to probably have more churn in some degree in the, in the seed, meaning that they're not going to have follow on capital and not going to be ready for light speed to write them a 30, 40, you know, $50 million check because they might not get there. Um, but at the same time, it's, so it's kind of like de-risking, but it's also a different skill set and it's a different understanding of what you need to deliver on. So 
I agree with you. I don't think there's one set answer. And I don't think that there's probably the way I would look at it is, is there a large enough pain that you can solve uh, that justifies your product? And then probably either wherever the opportunity gap is, right? And you, you should focus on. So it's hard to give, a, I understand it's hard to give a more specific answer for a generic question, but probably both things can work as long as there's a, a product need for what you're building. Totally. And the example you gave in terms of, and I think it's so good, I always tell folks like we should think of venture as a product the same way we think of any company as a product. And in terms of like the product market fit of why venture firms went up market and started doing growth in the first place, which is an evolution in the last you know 10 years or so that a lot of early stage funds, maybe 15 years, started doing this. And it's because you know they were thinking about from like a KPIs perspective, how do I extend my LTV with my winners? I had a series A or seed or B investment. I want to continue to protect that ownership. I want to continue. I've already put in the CAC for it. And so why would I like not reap the full LTV? And so that's another, you know, analogy for the enterprise customers, which is if your smaller customers grow and become enterprises and they take you into that market, then you might as well, you know, start to do growth or start to do enterprise because now you know how to service it. And yeah, like extend that LTV over CAC all day long. I think like every smart business should do that. Hey there. You might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. Well, we're on the topic of venture. So for a seamless transition, let's talk about Lightspeed a little bit. And you became a partner at Lightspeed almost four years ago. And Lightspeed is a massive and well-known VC uh, in the US. But for the Latam startup founders who might not know the whole story, maybe you can talk a little bit more about Lightspeed Give us, you know, AUM, investment criteria, and value prop for founders. Sure. Yeah. Our, our, our quick stats, Lightspeed, we've been around for about 20 years, a little longer than that. We have uh, $18 billion under management right now across all of our markets. Our markets include the U.S., India, China, Southeast Asia, Europe, Israel, and Latin America. And we do seed through growth. So, you know, check size is $1 million to $100 million although we've done smaller and bigger. Uh, our, one of our famous investments from Snapchat was actually like a $450,000 you know, first check into that company. We focus on a couple of different sectors. We do crypto, fintech, consumer, enterprise, and healthcare bio. And then we have kind of like, as I mentioned earlier in growth. Um, our, that's what we do today, but we got our start as an enterprise infrastructure early stage team only focused on the US. And so our founders kind of had a, insights around what was going to be the future of cloud security networks moving from on-prem to cloud. We've done a ton of great investments in that sector and we expanded into consumer in kind of like the mid 2000s. We expanded into India and China in the mid 2000s. And then, you know, in the last kind of like five years, we've added 
or less, maybe like last, since I've been here, we've added on Latin America, Europe, Southeast Asia, crypto, fintech. And so, uh, and yeah, healthcare bio was going as well from an earlier stage. And so we try to think of ourselves as like a big multi-stage firm that covers a lot of surface area. We love to work with the best founders and we're all very focused on kind of really like hustle immigrant founders with a lot of humility. That's our favorite type of people. Very uh, strong profile, pattern matching. There's a little chip on the shoulder ready to make it happen and and go after it, I think is a good quality in a lot of founders. Let's talk about the, we've got a lot of founders in our community at Latitude in the early stage. I'm not sure how much you know about the the Latitude community, but we've had 1,400 founders that go through our equity-free fellowships. Uh, Collectively, they've they've raised over $600 million in, in venture. Uh, and, you know, these are pre-seed and seed companies that have gone on to raise, raise capital. So it's a burgeoning community from Mexico down to Argentina and everywhere in between. Could you talk a little bit about your plans for early stage? You know, I know that you've done cross kind of stage agnostic and it helps having a large pool of capital where you can have flexibility. Tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on kind of seed, series A, when, when you like to come in. You mentioned the 450K and Snapchat. Congratulations, but also shows that you're able to go early too. What, what are your thoughts and your plans and how do you see the current environment where, you know, Series B is kind of, we just published an article on our, our, our blog about the Series B crunch in Latin America. I spoke with Paolo Passoni, formerly SoftBank and now, you know, Bicycle. And what are, you, what are you seeing in, you know, early stage and maybe talk a little bit more about kind of the different you know, phases of investment? Yeah, the I, I think it, you know I was talking with a bunch of seed investors recently, and one of them asked, "Why do the big VC funds never be able to seem to get like their seed strategy uh, kind of consistent?" And I do think you know we kind of go through periods of Series B investing and then Series A investing and seed investing in terms of each individual investor what they like the best. Twenty twenty one, I did a lot of Bs. Last year, I only did seeds and A's. This year, I would like to do some B's. Um, you know, prices just got so crazy last year. I think we think about it a little bit in different areas. Like in Latin America, we know our thesis when I started writing out the Latin America thesis in 2019 was that there was at that time, and there is still today, a capital gap at the Series B. So we know our dollars can be really additive there. We shied away from it the last few years because the valuation runs were out of control. And now that they're okay, we'd like to come back to it. But I like seed in series A too. So, you know, I, I think we'll continue to do those. Seed to me is just a really different type of investing, especially the pre-product market fit kind, which is what it almost always is. You're on this, you know, drunken walk of like searching for product market fit in the dark. And the type of investor or board member, if you have a board that you need to be in terms of being a good partner to that founder is so different being someone who kind of coaches them emotionally, guides them, keeps them just focused on experimentation and iteration culture and having the right A-level talent, the best they can get at that stage and just keeping the stamina and the energy up. Seed companies die when founders lose energy and their like will, their mojo for finding that product market fit. Series A investing onward, very different. You know, it's the post-product market fit, company building. How do I help you keep the plane, like build the plane as it's flying? And it's a lot more about hiring, company building, frameworks, you know, quarterly planning, 
thinking through P&Ls and budgeting. And so I, I really love both. I've been a seed stage founder. I've been a series A through series D, you know, startup employee. And um, I think, you know, in LATAM, we'll probably just continue to do that full barbell strategy. Um, and in the US, I actually think we should probably think about hiring someone just for seed because it's just such a different animal. Yeah, I, I like uh, your description of your your role at the different stages. I think that that's something that less experienced investors really understand. And fortunately, Latin America is maturing in terms of the sophistication of you know the asset class in general. But I, I couldn't agree more that there's a definitely a different role when you're coming in at C versus A and B. One question I have for you, and this is a question not, not to call you out, but you, you've got a large amount of capital, so you can come in flexibly. What would you say to a founder that's like evaluating and saying, oh, well, Lightspeed can do the, the, the seed, but you know, what happens if they do the seed and they don't do the Series A? What kind of signals that sends? This is, a, a, I guess, a multi-stage firm is one of the challenges with not having like a dedicated team focusing on the different stages. So what would you, how would you respond to that if founder was deciding who to work with at seed and, and you like the, the, you know, the company? I think it's only a problem if the, seer, if the investor, the bigger like multi-stage investor didn't get enough ownership at the A. If they don't have a lot of ownership at the A, at the seed and sorry, at the seed and they don't do the A, that's obviously kind of a weird signal, but I don't know. Like I've always heard this idea and I kind of push back against the premise. Like if the, if the bigger investor, sorry, the multi-stage investor got a 20% ownership in the seed, then the A, they might think everything's going well, but they're fine with their 20%. And so, you know, I guess they could double down and get 30%, but why would the founder want, you know, that much dilution for one investor on the cap table, diversifying the number of voices around the table is really helpful for having more perspectives to learn and grow and also for having more capital bases. So I I can see, I understand why it can be viewed as a negative, but, you know, my selfish response would be almost like, okay, we'll give the multi-stage investor more ownership of the seed. So it doesn't have that. Okay, that, 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 make, that, makes, that makes sense. So I guess you, you're saying that it might be a negative signal if, if, if you come in at the seed and you own 10 or sub 10% and then you don't because you haven't taken your bite that you, you know, that you normally like to take. Right. Um, okay. I think that's a, that's a fair, a fair assessment. I want to, I want to transition to, uh, you know, kind of a, a last topic here and, you know, I just was on the a call with my my co-founders uh, Gina Gotthilf and Yuri Danilchenko, uh, and we talk a lot about diversity in our company because we really think that it's a strategy, uh, it's it's an opportunity, building out a community of diverse people with diverse backgrounds. It's going to yield better results as as an organization, as a, as an ecosystem, and we were kind of lamenting the fact that. One of our engineering teams, and, and I'm happy to talk with you a little bit more about what we're building because it's more than you may know, but you know, we're building a handful of products and one of our engineering teams, it's just all men. And we were just kind of debating that and we were just like discussing. And, you know, one of the, one of our kind of, you know, people close in our community who is a senior engineer at Newbank shared some data with us that uh, 5% of, uh, in, of, of software engineers in Brazil are, are women. And our team is only, you know, we have a 10 or 12 person team. And so statistically, like, it's not crazy that we don't have any women, but it feels really bad. And it feels like we're not putting the effort or, 
kind of raised their hand and said, you know, what, what can we do to, to have more diversity? I know that you've been looking at diversity uh, since you were a student, uh, is my understanding. And what were some of the ways in which the lack of gender or race diversity kind of affected you when entering the financial startup and venture capital world? And what's your advice to me, given the, the conundrum that I shared with you? It's a great question. I love that you guys are focused on this and just the awareness and the inclination to want to do something about it is the first step. If that doesn't even exist, then, you know, similarity bias always takes over and it's just what you know. It's who you, it's who yours, your network. It's what like everyone likes themselves, what looks like yourself, you know, that's, that's what works. Um, the, yeah, I mean, on your first question in terms of, you know, how it, how it has affected me, I think, Overall, I feel quite privileged. I went to Harvard. I went to Stanford. I grew up in a family that was, you know, talking about business ideas at the dinner table every night. So I had a great upbringing. I think I'm equipped with all the skills to succeed. It is the, this conversation of, you know, getting in the door. Sometimes people talk a lot about, and there's an analogy people will use where uh, it's like going to a party. And they say, first, you have to be invited to the party. Then when you get inside of the door, you know, does someone hand you a drink or does someone explain to you like the different rooms and where people are? And then do you eventually start dancing and are you people cheering you on? And do you feel like you're actually part of the group? And all of those are various stages of acceptance that we need to unlock to truly make people feel comfortable and welcome in industries. The first one we focus on a lot is just getting people in the door because it's important. But if you have a culture where people are dancing you know, on the table at the party, they're thriving internally, people will see that from outside and they will want to come in and they will want to join because they go, oh, that's a place that can accept me. And so I, I think you re- we really have to think about it along that full spectrum. And, you know, for me, sometimes the issue has not been getting in the door. The credentials are fine, but then it's been the kind of like acceptance, you know, at places. I think past organizations I've worked at where, you know, maybe folks are going to a baseball game or something and the guys are like, oh, she probably doesn't want to go. I'm like, but clients are going, yeah, I don't like baseball, but like, I want to go to the baseball game with the clients and, you know, not being told about it until afterward. Or even, you know, innocuous things like you're, I remember pre-pandemic, I was standing in the office. Um, I can't stand too close to the receptionist table because, you know, I remember somebody walked in and just kind of like handed me their drink. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I was like, oh, they think they're handing me their drink to like throw away in the trash. <laughs> and I was like, I, okay, I'm going to, I'm the partner, investor partner who's going to be meeting with you. This is awkward. Um, you know, so <laughs> random things like that, you know, happen. That's, a, that's out of a movie, I swear. Like, that's crazy. That, that I mean, I, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised it happened, unfortunately, but like, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Right. And, but it, I guess it's the reality. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I remember like being in college and, you know, I grew up in like a small town and not a ton of diversity where I grew up and I, went, I ended up you know moving to San Diego. Three of my close friends, I had a friend that was black. I was Arabic. A guy was Mexican. It was the four of us. And the whole conversation around like, have you been harassed by the police before? And I was just like, you guys are, you, you know, what's, it's crazy, you know, like no way that's the, the case. And then when you actually are there and like your three other friends are like sharing anecdotes of incidences and they're your friends and you, you, you love them and you know them. 
you all of a sudden it just it kind of changes your perspective. But it, if you're not exposed to that, it, it's hard for you to relate to it. Totally. Yeah. That exposure. And yeah, I mean, even I've dealt with stuff like that where it's like, I, I don't expect myself to. I remember I was at Harvard. Um, we were like playing uh, like I think tag football on the lawn or something and kind of doing like a barbecue cookout with the Black Students Association. And someone in the dorms called the police and said, like, there's these people on campus. We don't know what they're doing. They're like making loud music and trespassing. And like, you know, the police came over and they're like, okay, we kind of see you're just having a field day and like continued on their way. But, you know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff like that. And I do agree, like you're to your question of like, what can folks do about it? It's just that awareness, that exposure, and then thinking through all of the steps and the kind of like inclusion journey of like, you might have to get a little more creative around getting people in the door. A lot of people I see in venture are taking on more women investors at more junior roles, but like take the chance also on like a senior woman operator who hasn't done investing before and, you know, maybe bring her in for, for an investing role, have the patience to help her learn the craft. But then also like once they're inside of the, you know, venture capital room partnership I'll use is thinking about, you know, this idea also of like conviction and how do people like pound the table, like pounding the table is a very male thing. And like, yet it is the expectation in venture partnerships. Women are always going to hedge, tell you all the analysis and facts and everything they've done. And then they're going to kind of go like, and I think it might like the answer I'm leaning toward is this. And people are like, you have no conviction. And you're like, actually, let's just like work with them a little bit, train them, coach them on like what you would want to see from a conviction perspective. But, you know, that's that diversity of mindset and being able to accept it, I think is so important. So I'm super glad y'all are doing that. Yeah, I mean, it's something that like when I partnered with my, my co-founders, one of the things that we discussed, well, Yuri and I had been working together a little bit and then Gina came in the mix. Gina's Brazilian, Yuri's from Russia. And we were working together and, think, you know, hatching a plan for Latitude. And I remember Gina came over to my house, you know, in Sonoma County and she, we sat down at the table and we were discussing, you know, becoming partners. And it was funny because she laid it out. She's like, listen, there's three things that are non-negotiable for me. One of them, I have no idea what it was. I don't even remember. She doesn't even remember. But it was two things. One, we need to change the name of, the, of, of Latitude because at the time it was Latitude 4 with a number 4, which is a terrible, you know, terrible name like for, for you know, what we're building. And so she was absolutely right about that. And she said, the second one is uh, you know, diversity is super important to me. I want to make an impact. I was at Duolingo where English education able to increase uh, people's income by you know, three times. I'm very impact driven. And this is a, a topic I care about. What she didn't know is that Yuri and I had both already talked about this. You know, I, we both have kids and, you know, I have a daughter and diversity, obviously a, a big topic. In my case, I had half of my executive team, my last company were women in very important roles. Yuri had built an engineering team where 35% were of the engineering team were women uh, in Brazil, which is high by any global standards. And so coincidentally, we had actually already kind of talked about this. And so it was something that was part of the DNA from the very beginning. And the thing that we talk about when we talk about this topic is this is not charity. This is also strategy because there's an incredible untapped opportunity. And I've actually seen you do this. If you look at the portfolio that we already discussed, you know, obviously Pamela, who's the CEO of Beak. Uh, you've got Marlene, one of the founders of Story, right? Uh, two really impressive, strong women that are leading companies. I'm sure there's other ones. But do you think that that's something that you've just been untapped opportunity or there's maybe being overlooked? and so? There's alpha there. Like, do you think about it from that standpoint? 
A hundred percent. I mean, it's a such a clear arbitrage opportunity that the fact that the vast majority of venture investors are not doing it, like almost definitionally makes them not capitalist because everybody knows the definition of arbitrage. And we've seen that women founders and women led teams tend to outperform in venture. First Mark has done some good uh, stats around this first round and it's just undeniable. And so I think about it as, you know, especially when you find a woman founder who has broken through the noise, you almost always have outsized opportunities. So my whole like goal with venture is to prove I can do it my way. I can, I can have a focus on building, investing in products that build wealth for consumers by focusing on founders that are from underrepresented backgrounds and underrepresented regions. And I will still have super outsized returns. Like that's what I hope I can say definitively with numbers when I look back on my VC career in like 15, 20 years and um, Pamela and Marlon and a bunch of other women founders I've invested in are just amazing examples of that. Well, that's awesome. We'd love to have you, you know, we're, we're looking to bring you close to the community and you're going to be speaking at one of our, our angel fellowships, uh, the cohort four. So looking forward to that. Uh, we'll also be hosting you in Mexico at Launchpad and definitely mark your calendar for. September 28th and 29th, I told Alex, I think he knew about it already, but uh, we're hosting the Vamos Latam Summit. So a quick plug here for our event. We're anticipating 3,500 founders and investors from across the region. Someone said it's the Coachella of startup uh, events. So we look forward to you know, working closer with you, finding opportunities to, to support you and give you, you know, access to the Latitude community. Uh, we think there's incredible founders that are coming out of the next generation. And that's part of our mission is to elevate the next generation of founders to reduce some of the friction and to you know build world class companies, not just amazing companies in Latin America but globally. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait for those events. They sound they're going to be amazing. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host Brian Reckworth. Almost Latam. See you next week.